Welcome and thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. The podcast is distributed on these platforms every Friday and is included in the NAHU's weekly member-exclusive health policy newsletter, The Washington Update, giving you a head start on your weekly healthcare happy hour. The Build Back Better Act, the reconciliation package that Democrats have been trying to piece together for the better part of a year, may finally have legs and may end up containing only a few specific healthcare provisions. On this week's episode of the Healthcare Happy Hour, NAHU lobbyists Chris Hartman and John Green are back to discuss the most recent developments in the Build Back Better Act and its new possibility of passage. So it's been several weeks since we discussed Build Back Better. While the House passed a version of the bill much earlier this year, it was always expected that a much more moderate version would be needed to pass the Senate through the reconciliation process. So what does the bill look like as of this week? Thanks, Dan, and thanks for having us back. So Senator Manchin has made some comments to a West Virginia reporter about his concerns with doing tax policy and climate change within the reconciliation bill, the negative effects that might have on inflation with the recent inflation report out. And so he's not comfortable with that. So that, again, shrinks the size of the reconciliation bill beyond the already shrunk reconciliation bill that we were talking before. And it really kind of leaves us to healthcare, which is NHU's topic anyway. So let's discuss a little bit about what that reconciliation bill may look like. There are still many steps to be left done in this process. Obviously, Senator Manchin needs to still sign off on a final product. Even if he has said he's comfortable with healthcare being in the reconciliation bill, there are other variables that we need to look at including, remember, this is a reconciliation process, so the parliamentarian has to approve that the provisions in the bill actually qualify under reconciliation. Uh, we should also always keep in mind that, yes, while Senator Manchin has been driving the situation, there are 49 other senators who could also gum up the works. Furthermore, there are House members who could gum up the works. There's a significant amount of House Democrats who have demanded that SALT be included in reconciliation. And SALT is the ability to deduct your property taxes from your federal income. A lot of those have been reduced under the last few years. They were pushing very hard for that to be included. Obviously, in a bill that does not include any tax provisions, this will eliminate the ability to put SALT in there. So there's lots of possible slumming blocks between now and seeing this passed. Just for context, reconciliation expires on September 30th. So that would be the true drop dead date of this legislation. There is a lot of pressure for that, but there's also a lot of pressure with the coming August recess. So even while the September 30th is the drop dead date, that's just the drop dead date that the Senate has to act. The House could actually act anytime while this Congress is still in session, so it could be later. But we think that that won't happen because the provision that they are hoping to add to this is the extension on the ACA subsidies. And, you know, as you know, carriers need some certainty as to whether they're going to have to change the rates or not, and, and that, which is a difficult thing in and of itself to do anyway. So the sooner that they know, the better. 
And I think that they really want to use this reconciliation as a way to have something to campaign on. So I don't think that they'll wait that long. As Chris said, there are some uh, variables in terms of what could change. Senator Manchin had indicated with regard to the subsidies that they should be mean tested. But now he's saying there should only be for two years. I think that just remains to be seen until we see actual legislative text. And of course, he has the, the to pay for that. It's going to allow the government to negotiate on a limited number of drugs and Medicare. And that's going to generate some of the savings. Yeah, let's dive a little deeper into the healthcare provisions being considered, including the drug pricing provisions that you just mentioned. Allowing for the Secretary of Health and Human Services to negotiate drug prices isn't a new idea, and some Democrats have wanted to include this provision in Build Back Better for some time. So can you provide some details on how this would work and what drugs would be negotiated under what is currently being considered? Yeah, so of the drug price negotiation section of the bill, and and there are several different prescription drug pieces to this legislation, but let's start with the negotiated prices. The legislation is not as wide a scope as some of you who may be familiar with HR3, the original House version of drug price negotiation. The scope here is much smaller. So it does authorize the secretary to negotiate on prescription drugs. In the year 2023, the secretary will be able to negotiate prices of the 10 highest cost prescription drugs. And the cost of those negotiations will go into effect to 2026. After that, the secretary then has the ability to negotiate the next 15 and then the next 20, and then each year 20 after that. So it's not as wide a scope as some of the other versions. This does not hit as many prescription drugs. And even after they're negotiated, they don't take immediately effect. They happen several years down the road. But this is going to be the largest impact on the cost of drugs. And even if you look at scoring of the provisions out there, this is where actually you see most of the savings that come into place and have the biggest impact on the federal government's budget. This is only price negotiations for Part D. And so that has the most immediate impact. It is not price negotiations across the board. There are pieces of the prescription drug bill here that the Senate parliamentarian that that we'll look at that does have effect on the employer-based market. The most important one being there's an inflation cap. And so that you cannot raise the prices of prescription drugs and inflation cap. This is particularly important to NHU for this reason. If Medicare negotiates the price of prescription drugs in Part D, we do fear that the pharmaceutical companies may raise the price of these same prescription drugs in other markets in order to make up the money they've lost on Part D. And the biggest market, as we know out there, is the employer-based system. So the legislation does also include a cap on that, that ability to inflate those prices over time so that there can't be cost shifting. The bill also does include inflation rebates in Part D for the other drugs that are not negotiated if pharmaceutical companies try to increase the rates of the cost of the drugs beyond the rate of inflation, there are rebates that would come back to them. So the bill has several different changes like that. Primarily, they are around Part D. There are also some changes that will affect Part D that aren't necessarily as directly related to the pharmaceutical companies. They're more related to the carriers. For example, Part D premiums cannot increase more than 6% a year under the legislation. So that is an effect on the carriers. 
And the income threshold for beneficiaries for qualifying for subsidy to help pay for Part D out-of-pocket costs would increase at 135% of federal poverty level. So these are some of the changes that are in the pharmaceutical section. And this is the only section that we've actually seen as an association. And we know this because it's actually been presented to the Senate parliamentarian for her review. The reason she needs to review all of this is because under reconciliation, you're only allowed to use reconciliation if the legislation you passed has substantial impact on either federal revenue or federal spending. So that's why we're looking at all of these provisions. We are very hopeful that the cap on the inflation on the employer-based system will survive the parliamentary of looking at this, but we expect that to come out this week. And, you know, Chris mentioned stumbling blocks uh, potentially ahead of which he noted there are several. And I think that whether all of this passes through parliamentarians' sniff test, if you will, may determine actually the fate of of the overall bill, right? Because if Senator Manchin's very concerned about inflation pressures and if the inflation caps did not survive, if he thinks that there's too much of a cost shift in an inflationary impact on the employer system, perhaps the whole thing could still go down. Yeah, I agree. And it's hard to see too many changes made to this. This legislation, as it was put together in the Senate, was very carefully negotiated. Like I said, it's much less ambitious than the original HR3. That is because of some House and Senate members who were not comfortable with Medicare having the ability to negotiate the prices on many, many more drugs as was allowed in HR3. There's a group of House members who were opposed to that with the Democrats only controlling the House by five seats. It only took six of them to demand changes. Furthermore, Senator Sinema was also uncomfortable with the ability of the secretary to negotiate on more prices. So this is a much smaller drug provision. It is still very financially would have a big impact. The impact is biggest on Part D and Part B beneficiaries. But overall, this would be the biggest change to prescription drugs that has happened in the last 20 years on any sort of prescription drug legislation if this does pass. But there are many stumbling blocks to see that happen before this ends. So as we've already mentioned, in addition to these drug pricing provisions, the new language for Build Back Better also includes an extension of the expanded ACA premium tax credits that were included in 2021's American Rescue Plan Act. This extension, as they're talking about right now, would be for two years. So can you speak a bit more about these increased subsidies and what this conversation means for the market? Sure. So under the American Rescue Plan, there was an increase in the amount of ACA tax credits, particularly for people who make more than 400% of poverty. Previously, under the law, if you made more than 400% of poverty, you were not eligible for any ACA tax credit assistance. And it created kind of a cliff in the system, really, because like if you were at 350, you were still getting a significant amount, and then you literally dropped to zero. This kind of softens the cliff and puts it on more of a glide path going down. The provisions are, as you mentioned right now, the last we heard, only for two years. I will keep in mind, we've not actually seen the language, but here we hear that's for two more years. I find that interesting for a couple of reasons. That simply brings us back to the same sort of problem point we are at now, that two years from now, we'd be back discussing this again. Two years from now, we would be back discussing this before an election, a very big election that would also include the presidential race. 
So I, I find it kind of a weird timing to do just two years, particularly where you look at where that sort of falls in the electoral calendar. But that is what they are looking at now. Many of the state-based marketplaces are looking for a little more certainty in the process and to make these extensions permanent. In fact, earlier versions of reconciliation had these tax credits made permanent. I think for a lot of individuals and agents who work on the individual market, they're looking for more certainty. Two years obviously does not bring a lot of certainty to the market. It makes difficulty for the carriers when they try to use the actuaries to rate their products. One of the things that we know is that without the ACA subsidies, the carriers will actually increase the rates because they fear that only the sick will sign up for a more expensive health insurance plan and the healthy will sign up if it is cheap or free. So those are things the actuaries do look at. And a lot of this is also looking at this from the actuarial point of view from the long term. Uh, Most people ideally would like to stick with an insurance plan for more than one year at a time. And so a lot of the state marketplaces did send in a letter requesting this to be permanent. I, I think people are have been hearing that on the Hill. At the same time, this is something that's going to be negotiated out amongst a very few senators. I find it highly unlikely that it will get to the point of being made permanent. And interestingly enough, the prescription drug pieces that are in there actually save considerably more money than spending for two years of the ACA. And so the rest of the savings would go to deficit reduction if this all holds as is. Now, there's other possible ways that this could go. The money might be used for other things, everything from COVID preparation to we haven't discussed anymore the states that did not extend Medicaid. In earlier versions of that, there was the idea of using the ACA tax credits to allow people to buy individual market plans in the states that did not expand Medicaid. That has not been talked about, but you could use some of those funds there. So right now, the way this bill is designed, there would be substantial savings that would come to the federal government because the amount the federal government would be spending on prescription drugs would go down considerably. Some of that money would be spent on the ACA tax credits being extended for two years. And then actually the lion's share of the rest of the savings would go to deficit reduction under its current design, at the very least the way we're hearing from the media. I suspect that this is something that will continue to be uh, discussed and negotiated out over time, particularly in the Senate. Senator Schumer and Senator Manchin, and I'm sure Senator Sinema, will want part of this conversation. So I think it's interesting to note that the CBO, when they scored this, said that the number of insured would not change with or without the extension of the subsidies. The state would hold at 13 million. And so I think that. That will somehow have to be sorted out in terms of what is the government getting for those extra dollars. I think that this is more about optics, the fact that premiums are going to go up rather than how many people we actually cover. And that's where the debate's going to center on. But the fact that they're doing this through reconciliation, they don't need Republican votes. But I just flagged that for you. With all that being said, I know we talked a little bit about a certain deadline that Senate needs to get a reconciliation package done. We talked about all these different areas. With all that being said, in your expert opinions, what is the package's likelihood of passage now? Do we think these provisions could be passed as they're being currently talked about, or do we anticipate further changes or additions? Well, one of the important things that you're sort of alluding to is timing. Obviously, the marketplaces need to 
begin putting their the plans out. Plans need to figure out those rates. And like I said, the rates are going to be different, not only based on like, are you getting a tax credit or not, but how the plans are going to price the plans based on their risk pool changes. So we are running out of time to get this done. And so I talked about originally reconciliation expires September 30th. But if we pass a bill that does ACA tax credits on September 30th, that's entirely too late for individual market to adjust in that time. So I really think if ACA tax credits are going to be done as part of reconciliation, it really needs to be done before the Senate goes out of town on their August recess. If the Senate has decided that reconciliation will not involve ACA tax credits, you could go up to that September 30th deadline and pass a bill that deals with prescription drugs and other topics the senators might want to address to go back and be looking at issues like climate change, tax policies, fault deduction, other things like that. But at September 30th, you really are too late to deal with the ACA tax credits if you're trying to apply them to the January 1st plans in the start of the new year. So I think what's encouraging for those who are in support of reconciliation is that you know, the president has indicated that he's in favor of this slim down package and he wants them to act now. And so I think that in that respect, it, as you pointed out in the, your introduction, have legs. And I think there is some momentum in that regard. But Chris mentioned the parliamentarian's role here cannot be understated. If important provisions are kicked out, there's a question about whether the whole thing holds together. And so there are a number of questions as to, as you said, is if it, if it looks the way that it does today and what we think it will look like, then I think their chances are pretty decent for getting something done. But you never know that things have changed so many times that I've lost count of the number of times statements have been made that were close or we're almost there and then it just falls apart for one reason or another. And so in keeping with that, I'm not willing to make a specific prediction, but if things hold as they are, I think that their chances are good. And I think the final wild card will always be Senator Manchin. Does he ultimately decide he can't support a prescription drug and ACA tax credit bill? Because, you know, in earlier versions of reconciliation, obviously he killed the bill back better. And then he said he'd still be willing to consider climate change and tax pieces. Now he's no longer willing to consider those. It is possible that as time continues, he becomes uncomfortable with these other provisions. I think he always remains the final wild card. And to be quite honest, it could be the wild card right up to the point of the vote on the Senate floor. We've seen other dramatic moments in healthcare policy on the Senate floor where it does come down to one vote decided at the last minute. So uh, I, I think this is something that we will be on the edge of our chairs for quite some time. And this could be a nail biter right up to the end. It is now time for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour Toast of the Week. So what are we toasting to this week? We're toasting to the new 988 hotline number for suicide prevention. This one issue on mental health is something we all agree on here in Washington. And so I think that in celebration of something that we can all agree on that is for the greater good, cheers to 988. Cheers. Thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. 
For more information on NAHU's government affairs efforts or to become a member, visit NAHU.org.